All right. Well, it's good to be here with you all. Um, we're going to be talking about Polycarp, but I need prayer. Can we pray? We, let's pray again. Lord, we thank you so much, God, uh, for being so good to us. Lord, we thank you for your grace. Lord, we thank you for your mercies that are renewed every day. And Lord, without you, where would we be? We would be so lost. We would be without hope. But Lord, you have come and you have redeemed our souls so that we could have a new life, so that we could have eternal life. And so, Lord, uh, we just want to continue to dedicate this time to you here tonight. And we pray, God, that you would uh, speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, we're going through legends, and I get to share with you about Polycarp. Now, I got excited because I like to fish, and I said, Polycarp, what is that? You know, it has nothing to do with any kind of fishing because, you know. But Polycarp, you know, that name actually means much fruit. Polycarp lived during the time between around 69 A.D. to 155 A.D., Something unique about him is he was a disciple of the Apostle John. Yes, John who wrote several of the books in the New Testament. He was a disciple of the Apostle John. And Polycarp was a bishop or the pastor of the church in Smyrna. And you remember, Smyrna was one of the seven churches that was written to in the book of Revelation. He is known primarily for his martyrdom. And he was martyred in Smyrna. And that is especially what he is known for. And so, a few other things about Polycarp. Um, There we go. He wrote a letter to the Philippian church. And while he wrote several other letters, we, we have this letter that if you wanted to, you could go online and read it. You can read this letter. Um, And also he is mentioned in a writing that was given to us by the church of Smyrna, his church, called the Martyrdom of Polycarp. And this was given to us by eyewitnesses, if you will, of his martyrdom. And it was written not too long after his, his death. It was written so that it could be given to the churches, started starting with the church at Philomelium, but then it was to be shared with all the churches around. Now, Polycarp is regarded as one of the most influential leaders of the second century. And the reason is because he lived in a time of transition. So up to this point, we had the apostles who had lived and walked with Jesus, but now they had all been passing away Um, I know this is going to be hard to see, but you have Paul and Peter who were executed around 65 AD. And then after that, around 69, comes in uh, Polycarp. John is still around. It is thought that Polycarp was actually converted by John and then discipled by John. How cool is that? And so he is known as one of the most influential church leaders. Irenaeus was a student of Polycarp, and he wrote this. He said he would speak of his familiar communion with John, 
and with the rest of those who had seen the Lord and how he would call their words to remembrance, whatsoever things he had heard from them respecting the Lord, both with regard to his miracles and his teaching. Polycarp, having thus received it from the eyewitnesses of the word of life, would recount them all in harmony with the scriptures. So how cool would it have been to have that connection? Hey, Polycarp learned and was taught by the very apostles that walked with Jesus. Very, very interesting. Now, a few things about this letter that he wrote. It was a response to, uh, to him, given to him by the churches. And in that letter, you're going to see that he speaks a lot about the righteousness. He gives an answer to the theological uh, way to attain righteousness, which is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. He would also talk about church discipline. He would also include some writings from Ignatius. And those that have studied the letter that he wrote to the church at Philippi came to these three conclusions. You know what? He got his information from, first of all, the words of the Lord. He quoted them. Um, He was known as a conservative traditionalist of what had been handed down from Jesus. So during this time, there were a lot of new ideas, heresies that would come up, and people would come up and make up new doctrines. But Polycarp was a conservative, and he would say, no, 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 that is not what was handed down to us by the Lord himself. Also, he quoted and referred to Old Testament writings. We see that he alluded to Psalms and Proverbs and Isaiah and Jeremiah and possibly Ezekiel. And then, of course, he got a lot of his information from the apostolic writings. Of the 27 books in the New Testament, he quotes 17 of them. Quite a bit. And it just goes to show how he knew the scriptures. And I'd like to also point out, not once did he ever quote a heretic. Not once did he ever say or write anything that contradicted anything Christ taught or any of the scriptures. He was just, everything was simply from the word of God. Now, concerning that letter, the martyrdom of Polycarp. It is the first recorded martyrdom in post-New Testament history. So, you can look at Acts and you're going to read about Stephen. And how he was martyred. Well, between that and Polycarp, there's nothing recorded. And so this is the first recorded martyrdom. And as I said, it was composed by those who actually say that they were there. They witnessed his martyrdom. And they wrote about it. Now, I want to share a few things. And all the things that I learned about Polycarp, honestly, we don't know a whole lot about his life. It is thought that, obviously, he was brought up by a Christian family and taught uh, in the Christian ways. Um, But what what I want to share with you is the circumstances that he lived in. Because we know a lot about that. We know, as I said, that he was killed for being a Christian. He was martyred for that. But what were the circumstances? Well, if you look at the map here, I know it's kind of small. 
but you have the Mediterranean Sea, and then you have here, um, down here is Jerusalem, just so you can kind of find your bearings. And then you have Ephesus, and up there you have Smyrna. And in today, that would be modern-day Turkey, just so you can kind of have an idea of where we are. Now, during that time, this map, it shows in red the Roman Empire. Okay, this is the existing Roman Empire. And you're going to notice that in white, there is some spread happening, and that is Christianity. And so, in the midst of a Roman Empire, Christianity is growing like crazy, like never before. So, early Christians, there was this amazing move and growing of this faith. And why did it grow so fast? Well, there have been suggestions. First of all, these Christians were moved by a burning conviction. There were Christians who lived as hard as they could for Jesus Christ. They lived for him. They would determine their lifestyle based upon the teachings of Jesus Christ and the faith. Another reason for this spread was there is something different about Christians. There is this love that they had about them. When you consider all the other religious people, you know, in the Greeks and the Romans, they had many gods, lowercase g, right? Many gods. But they didn't have the love that these Christians had. There is this love that was just so unique. And even the heathens would say, wow, look at how they love each other. And they weren't kidding. There was just something different. Another reason for this spread, and this is what leads us to Polycarp, was persecution. During all of the persecution that happened, um, there was just this difference in the, the way that they were killed, the way that they were martyred. Um, every time a Christian was martyred, there was this cool courage in the face of torment. There was a courtesy towards their enemies. There was a joyful acceptance of the suffering as the way appointed by the Lord to lead his heavenly kingdom. There are a number of cases of conversions of pagans in the very moment of witnessing the condemnation and death of Christians. So you have Christians being martyred, being killed for their faith, and non-Christians witnessing it and saying, they know the true God. And they would be converted right there on the spot. Before Jesus left, right, he told his disciples, don't leave until the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And he said, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you're going to be my witnesses. And you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. And what's interesting is if you look at that word witnesses, it comes from the Greek word martis, from which we get the term martyr. And that is specifically what it means. It is a witness. 
It is one who declares or who can declare what he himself has seen or heard or knows. It is one who testifies for one. It is to be a witness for one to serve him by testimony. And so people would be witnesses. Many Christians were martyred for their faith. And you see here, it all started, uh, Peter and Paul were killed during the time of Emperor Nero. And lots of things happened. Uh, He is accused of burning down the whole city. And why? Because he wanted to rebuild it in a way that was more to his liking. So what he did is he would blame the Christians. And it was a complete lie, but the Christians were the ones that were blamed for that. Also, Nero would take the Christians and he would throw them in the Colosseum with the wild beasts, lions and tigers. He would wrap Christians uh, in fur from dead animals and throw them in there so that wild dogs could go and just tear them apart. At night, he would, and you can kind of see it there in the background, He would tie Christians to the stake, pour tar upon them, and light them so that they could burn all night. And he would ride around in his chariot just celebrating the fact that he was doing that. And so Christians, if you were a Christian at this time, there was this possibility that you might end up like this. Is that anything like what it is today for us? Not even close, right? Our persecution is quite pathetic. It's easy, right? They might make fun of you. Maybe you don't get to go to a party with friends that are doing things that you know you shouldn't be doing. And so you don't go. Maybe you're made fun of. But nothing, nothing like this. So why were they persecuted? Well, I just want to give a little bit more uh, information about that. The main cause of hatred for the Christians was just this different lifestyle. They had a very different lifestyle. The word used for a Christian was a Greek word, hagios, which is translated saints. But it really, in its root meaning, it simply means different. And they were hated for just being different. The more... Early Christians took their faith seriously the more they were in danger of a crowd reaction. Thus, simply by living according to the teachings of Jesus, the Christian was a constant unspoken condemnation of the pagan way of life. For the Christian to live in an ethical way was simply in and of itself criticism of the pagan life. For example, I'm just going to go down a short list here. The Christian rejected all of the pagan gods. The Greeks and Romans had deities for every aspect of living, for sowing, for reaping, for rain, for wind, for volcanoes and rivers and birth and death and so on. But to the Christians, these gods were nothing. And their denial of them marked the followers of Jesus as, quote-unquote, enemies of the human race. For the pagan, every meal began with a liquid offering and a prayer to the pagan gods. A Christian couldn't partake in that meal with them. 
Most heathen feasts and social parties were held in precincts of a temple altar sacrifice that had been made. And the invitation was usually to dine at the table of some god. And of course, the Christian couldn't partake in that. Other social events that the Christians rejected just because they found them wrong were gladiatorial combats, for example, where it was very inhumane, according to the Christians. And of course, they were right. The Romans would force prisoners of war and slaves to fight with each other to the death. All of this just for amusement, the amusement of the crowd. And it was just exciting to them. It was very seductive. The Christian fear of idolatry also made it difficult for a Christian to even make a living. Now think about this. A mason might be involved in building the walls of a heathen temple. They had to be careful with that. A tailor in making robes for a heathen priest. An incense maker in making incense for the heathen sacrifices. Tertullian even forbade Christians to be school teachers because such teaching involved the use of textbooks that told ancient stories of the gods and called for observing the religious festivals of the pagan year. We might think that working with the sick was something that was easy and straightforward, but even the early Christians found the pagan hospitals under the protection of heathen gods. And while the sick friend was laying in the bed, the priest would go up and down the aisle chanting to the God. And so in short, everything that the Christian did, he almost had to divorce himself from society. Because he was in danger of worshiping those idols and those false gods. And so they were persecuted. Funny thing is Christians were accused of atheism. Because they didn't believe in all of the gods. The Greeks and the Romans wouldn't, they couldn't fathom this uh, idol-less god. They couldn't fathom bowing down or praying to a statue, an idol. Who is this one and only God who is invisible? And so they were ridiculed for that. And all of this led to one thing. There is a belief that if you upset the gods, then they would come against you. And so anytime anything bad happened, if there, is, there could have been an earthquake or the, the, the river overflowed, or the river ran dry, or it didn't rain, or whatever you fill in the gap, there was a saying that everybody would cry out, Christians to the lions. Why? Because it was their fault. Another thing that led to lots of persecution was what is known as emperor worship. And this is exactly one of the things that Polycarp would die for. Emperor worship. Now the thing about emperor worship, when the Romans would come and conquer, they would overtake a country. And then all of a sudden, the roads would be rid of robbers. The seas and the oceans would be uh, rid of pirates. And so there is this peace known as the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. They brought peace, and so 
a lot of the citizens were filled with this gratitude. Whoa, we're so thankful for the peace that the Roman Empire has brought to us. And so what happened is that they needed a symbol and the emperor himself became that symbol of Rome. He embodied Rome. He was the spirit of Rome, if you will. And so everybody was forced to worship Caesar. One would have to get a pinch of incense. And like the salt guy, burn it, right? Burn it. But they would have to say, Caesar is Lord. That's what they had to do. Now, this didn't become widespread until about 250 A.D., meaning throughout the Roman Empire, if you didn't do this, you couldn't work, you couldn't trade, you, you, were, you were killed. In the time of Polycarp, it was starting, but it wasn't in every uh, province or city of the Roman Empire. But where Polycarp was, this is how it was. So if you didn't do that, you were restricted in so many ways. Once you did that, according to the Romans, you can go and worship any god you wanted to. You first had to give that allegiance to Caesar. And it really became something that was uh, political. You have to declare that Caesar is Lord and you have to show us that you are uh, a faithful Roman citizen. And so what would happen is that Polycarp would eventually be martyred for, why? For not doing that. He would definitely not do that. Now, I want to share just a few uh, parts out of the martyrdom of Polycarp. And again, this is a story, um, this is what was recorded about how he was arrested Uh, how he was martyred, the things that happened. And I'm going to put up, as I read, just a few quotes um, that he's known for. But it goes like this. When word came that the Roman soldiers were on their way to arrest Polycarp, at first, when he heard of it, he wasn't even dismayed, but he wanted to stay in town. But there was a greater part of people that persuaded him to withdraw, and so he withdrew to a farm not too distant from the city. And as he was there, he was praying, and he fell into a trance three days before his apprehension, and he saw his pillow burning with fire. And so he turned and said to those that were with him, it must be that I shall be burned alive. He was told, don't don't talk like that. Don't say things like that. Well, those that were in search of him persisted, And so he departed to another farm, and as they were in search of him, they came up and found nothing to where he had been previously, but they seized two slave boys, one of whom uh, confessed under torture where Polycarp was. And so bringing the lad with him, bringing the boy with him, the the soldiers and the horsemen, they went forth with their accustomed arms, hastening as against a robber. And coming up late in the evening, they found the man himself in bed in an upper chamber in a certain cottage. And though he might have fled to another place, 
he would not, saying, The will of God be done. So when he heard that they had come, he went down and he conversed with the soldiers. And the bystanders, marveling at his age and his constancy, and wondering how there should be so much eagerness for the apprehension of such an old man, about 86 years old at this time. Thereupon he gave orders that a table should be spread for the soldiers so that they could eat and drink, and so that he could go for at least just one hour to pray. So he convinced the soldiers, please let us prepare for you a table. I'm sure you all are hungry. You've been traveling all day. Come and eat and drink as much as you want. I'm going to go for one hour and pray. Well, they consented, and after two hours of him praying, they finally said, it is time to go. Many of the soldiers repented that they had come against such an honored and esteemed old man. The hour of departure had come, and so they brought him to the city, and there was waiting for him the captain of the police with his father, Nicetus, who removed him from and brought him to the carriage and told him such things as, Why, what harm is there in saying Caesar is Lord and offering uh, incense? Why don't you just save yourself being the old man that you are? And Polycarp would say, I'm not going to do what you are counseling counseling me to do. As Polycarp entered the stadium, so imagine the stadium in Smyrna, the Colosseum, and it's full. As he entered the Colosseum, a voice came to him from heaven saying, Be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. No one saw the speaker No one could see who it was that said it, but many heard the voice. The authorities brought this highly respected pastor into this crowded arena, and they brought him and put him before the proconsul or the governor. And he told him, simply swear by Caesar. And Polycarp would say, 86 years I have served him. And he has done me no wrong. How could I blaspheme my king who has saved me? I am a Christian, Polycarp would say. If you want to know what else there is about Christianity, then set a day and I will tell you. The proconsul would tell him, persuade the people then. And Polycarp would respond, I would explain to you, but not to them. The proconsul would say, then I'll throw you to the beasts. Polycarp would say, bring on your beasts. Then the proconsul would say, I'll have you burned alive. And Polycarp would respond, you try to frighten me with a fire that burns for but an hour. And you forget the fire of hell that never goes out. The governor called the people and said, Polycarp says he is a Christian. And so the mob let loose and they they shouted, This is the teacher of Asia, the father of the Christians, the destroyer of our gods. And it all happened so fast, but faster than words could tell, the crowds 
then collected from workshops, timber, and the Jews more especially assisting in this with zeal. The instruments that were prepared for the pile were placed about him, and as they were going likewise to nail Polycarp to the stake, he said, leave me as I am. He that has granted me to endure the fire will grant me also to remain at this pile unmoved and without the security which you seek from the nails. So they did not nail him, but they tied him. Then he, placing his hands behind him, being bound to the stake like a noble ram out of a great flock for an offering, a burnt sacrifice, he said, O Lord God Almighty, the Father of thy beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have received the knowledge of thee, the God of angels and the powers and of all creation, and of the whole race of righteousness who live in thy presence. I bless thee, for thou hast granted me this day and this hour that I might receive a portion amongst the number of the martyrs in the cup of thy Christ under the resurrection of eternal life. May I be received among these in thy presence this day as a rich and acceptable sacrifice. I praise thee, I bless thee, I glorify thee through the eternal and heavenly high priest, Jesus Christ, thy beloved Son, through whom with him and the Holy Spirit be the glory now and forever in the ages to come. Amen. And when he had offered that prayer, they lit the fire And a mighty flame was flashing forth. And it was given to us so that we could declare and share with you. We were preserved that we might relate the rest of what happened. The fire making the appearance of a vault. Like the sail of a vessel filled by the wind. Made a wall around the body of the martyr. And it was there in the midst, not like flesh burning, but there was a fragrant smell. As it was the order of frankincense or some other precious spice. And so Polycarp is there, tied to the stake. There is a fire burning, but it's not touching him. The fire is not consuming him. So at length... The lawless men, seeing that the body could not be consumed by the fire, ordered an executioner to go up to him and stab him with a dagger. And when he had done this, there came forth a quantity of blood so that it extinguished the fire. And all the multitude marveled that there should be so great a difference between the unbelievers and the elect. Polycarp is especially remembered more than others by all men so that he is talked of even by the heathen in every place. For he showed himself not only a notable teacher but also a distinguished martyr whose martyrdom all desire to imitate, seeing that it was after the pattern of the gospel of Christ. And that is the story of how he was martyred. Now, the church in Smyrna, when you consider that he was the pastor of the church in Smyrna, before he was martyred, John would pen these words spoken by Christ. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, 
write, These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say you are Jews, who say they are Jews and are not, but they are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Now Smyrna, as you know, came from the word from which we get myrrh. Myrrh was a fragrance that was released only when it was what? Crushed. When myrrh was crushed, when it was pressed and broken down, when it was crushed, it would then release this pleasing fragrance. And while the Christians of the church at Smyrna were experiencing the bitterness of suffering, their faithful testimony was like myrrh or a sweet perfume to God. Notable was the fact that there was no rebuke whatsoever for this church. Remember, there was seven letters written to seven churches. To five of those churches, there was a rebuke. To two of them, there was no rebuke. Smyrna was one of the churches that Jesus did not rebuke for anything. And this is uh, in striking contrast because it showed that while they were suffering, they were going through extreme difficulties, all this had helped them keep pure in the faith and in life. I've heard people say that the weakest church is the unpersecuted church. And the strongest church is the persecuted church. And history actually proves that. In areas, in times and seasons where the church is being persecuted, there is this growth. There are these Christians living and standing up for their faith. And so, um, I want to end with this verse. Therefore, whoever confesses me, Jesus said, before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. It's no coincidence that in Revelation we read about the second death. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, the liars, they shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And if you notice in that list, the cowardly. Jesus would declare this and what a meaning these words had for the church in Smyrna. How does this apply to you and I right now? 
again, we're not going to face, at least at the time being, persecution for being a Christian. But it does sure sound a lot about what I read is going to come. It sure is kind of a, a symbol. It's, it's synonymous to what I see is coming in this day and age now. Where Christ has been taken out of the schools. Our country is no longer open to Jesus Christ being God and God alone. To where we're seeing that if you are not compromising and accepting of so many things that the culture wants to bring, then you are, you are persecuted, if you will. You are called a racist. You are called judgmental. And we can make a long list. Sexual immorality. Homosexuality. Lying and all this political junk that is happening in our country. And who are we loyal to? Well, before you answer that, I think we need to consider who are you loyal to? And as we make our choices, as we work, as we live in this life, are you living in a way that confesses Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Are you living in a way where everybody looks and sees there's this love about that Christian different? Or are you compromising? Because I'll tell you what, the people that paid the ultimate price, the, the martyrs, Polycarp, the, the church of Smyrna, what would they say to us today? It's an amazing thought when you consider now, Polycarp taught that you shouldn't go and seek martyrdom. Don't go and look for it. Don't go and volunteer. That's not, he didn't believe that's what God called him or any Christian to do. But he did teach that if it was, if you were called upon, if you were put in a situation where you were going to face martyrdom, then you were to remain Faithful, for Jesus was faithful to you. And so I want to encourage us all, let's be faithful. Let's be willing to be, quote unquote, persecuted for Christ. Whoever does this will not face the second death. Whoever does this will have Many times it's referred to as the crown of life, the crown of righteousness. And this is what we live for. This is why Christ died. So with that, would you all close your eyes, bow your heads, and let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for faithful men and women. Lord, we thank you that you're the ultimate example Lord, you were killed, you were martyred, you were persecuted for doing absolutely nothing wrong but everything right. And Lord, we pray that you would evaluate our hearts in this moment. God, that we would be determined, that we would 
decide who is my Lord. Lord, that we would decide and that we would live in such a way and we would declare Jesus is my Lord. Lord, would you strengthen us as you strengthen Polycarp? Lord, persecution is not something we would look forward to. But even if we had to face that, God, we have hope. We have an expectation. We have your promises that our last breath will be followed by our first breath, if you will, in your very presence. Oh, Lord. The martyrs celebrate in your presence. They enjoy your presence. Lord, may we continuously enjoy your presence. May we live for you with all of our hearts. And I just want to give everyone just a minute in your heart. Would you speak to God and would you surrender your life to him? Maybe you need to do it again. Maybe you've never done it. But in your heart and you declare and you say, Jesus, you are my Lord. I want to live for you. If I'm called to die for you, that's one thing, but I want to live for you. Lord, with that, we give our lives to you, our bodies, use us, spend us as you please. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.